This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Nathan Rubin, founder of Millennial Politics, and Rashida Tlaib, Democratic nominee for Congress in Michigan's 13th. Thanks for coming on. And Rashida, congrats on winning your primary. Thank you so much. I'm excited. It's still sinking in. (laughs) Yeah, it's really awesome. So what was the journey up to the primary like? What drove you to jump into this race in the first place? You know, we had no idea. And when I say we, I'm talking about friends and people in the social justice movement. Many of us are community organizers. Uh, We're all working on economic justice issues, um, women rights issues, immigrant rights. I mean, that's my kind of work family. Uh, And many of us had no idea that, uh, you know, Congressman Conyers was going to retire. And there was rumors... uh, you know, looming around there um, early December and then later in December. I mean, we were, we had no idea. And then all of a sudden uh, I realized this was an opportunity to jump in the ring instead of standing on the sidelines and expecting someone else to run and, and make, you know, make a difference or be a voice for many of us. And uh, yeah, now here we are. We knew it was an uphill, uphill battle just primarily because you know, I was told that it wasn't my turn, that I should wait. Uh, the, many of the establishment groups uh, supported, overwhelmingly supported many of my opponents. And so we, we knew it was going to be really hard, uh, but no one believes me. There wasn't like the secret, uh, you know, strategy. It really was doors. Uh, and we, over 50,000 doors, me and a, a team of field organizers, incredible group of just young people from all backgrounds. Uh, and we didn't let up. I mean, we started when there's still snow on the ground. Um, and then when the heat came, we continued on. Uh, I remember even fasting during the month of Ramadan, um, uh, during the whole process, and we still kept going. And I really do believe those doors are what got us over the edge. And I mean, we won less with less than a thousand votes. Uh, but we didn't expect, I mean, we're talking about probably 25 or 30,000 more people came out to vote than they ever have in the last three primaries. That's amazing. So, as you said, this seat opened up because of the resignation of John Conyers. He was forced to resign in December when stories broke that he had not only sexually harassed multiple women in Congress, but also used $27,000 in taxpayer money for a settlement. What would you do in Congress to support survivors, potentially against fellow members of Congress? You know, as a survivor, my first job outside of college was at a civil rights organization. It was an Arab American civil rights organization that was very prominent. And I just, I was horrified because I really didn't know what was going on. And I understand just how alone you might feel in this kind of 
sense that people don't believe you. And I just want survivors to know people, many of the women, even men that might be going through this right now um, as a staffer for a member of Congress, as somebody that even works on the Hill, uh, that I am someone that will not shush them, which I got shushed or told uh, to just leave it alone, that I will be very much a strong advocate to changing that culture of, you know, sweeping it under the rug and pretending it's not happening. I know how unbelievably uh, less than that you feel when that happens to you in your workplace. It's so unexpected. You don't really realize just the tremendous amount of damage that you're causing to that human being, that person, uh, until, you know, it's too late. And I just want so many of the survivors to know that um, I hear them, I know this is happening, and I believe them. So, Rashida, I want to circle back to the nature of your candidacy. Um, It is quite historic. You are now running unopposed, so you will become both the first Muslim American and Palestinian American woman ever to serve in Congress. What does that mean to you? You know, it's overwhelming, but I got to tell you, you know, what is more inspiring and something that gives me tremendous amount of hope is the fact that it happened now, that it happened during this time of darkness in our country, the time where Islamophobia is at such a high uh, rate that we're hearing so much negativity around people of color, around women, around my LGBTQ neighbors. I mean, we are feeling so much like we don't belong in our own country. And, and I'm not just talking about Muslims. I'm even talking about women. Uh, and I can, I can tell you, you know, for me to be elected by a predominantly non-Muslim district, a non-Arab district. I mean, less than 5% are Arab Americans in my district. The fact that I was elected during the time where Trump is president of the United States, that to me is an incredible message for our country to say that we are so much better than what we thought we were when he was elected. And uh, that I hope that, that people, you know, are still in celebrating this. Uh, and knowing that we have so much more work to do, but that this shows you that, you know, if you believe, we can win. So you are clearly very dedicated to marginalized communities. You even have an entire section on your website dedicated to what you call justice for all. Could you walk us through what that means legislatively? Yeah. So 55 years ago, we passed an incredible piece of legislation, which was the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And that act was to prevent what's happening now with education. When we look at the inequity in, in education, the funding, the, the way, uh, especially uh, in communities of color and in low-income communities, what is happening to the education system has been the travesty. It's so un-American that we sit at the sidelines and allow that to happen. But also, you know, for me here in Michigan, I know the discriminatory practices among banks continue on because less than half of my families own their own home. The fact that car insurance industry uh, is practicing what we call redlining and really uh, discriminatory, discriminating against people based on their zip codes. And why that is really happening, I truly believe, is because the Civil Rights Act of 64 was deteriorated in many ways through the courts. You know, judges, 
that uh, we're hearing uh, cases that were brought by, you know, the corporate world uh, deteriorated the, the, the intent by saying now that if you want to show that your, you, your rights, your civil rights were violated, you have to show that it was intentional discrimination. Well, that wasn't the intent of the act in 64. We said that if you can show impact, impact that the legislative uh, policy uh, or the policy in the private or public sector on the ground as it's implemented is discriminatory in, in, in essence, like the disparate impact that you can show, that was enough to show that our rights were violated. And so I want to get back to those core and, you know, the intent of the act 55 years ago. And that's why I propose, and this is one of the first pieces of legislation I'll be working on, is the Justice for All Civil Rights Act to restore what 64 meant. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there, so if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout Shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. So you are one of the very first candidates to join the call to abolish ICE, which is great. So I'd like to talk about what that actually means. Many immigrant activists are rightfully worried that some politicians are hijacking the movement by making about replacing ICE, when the actual point is made clear by the undocumented organizers is to abolish the practices that ICE embodies and carries through detention and deportation. Now, why is that? because those two practices only started because of the Chinese Exclusion Act and weren't even ruled constitutional until the Fong Yuting decision, which validated the Chinese Exclusion Act. Now, the only reason that detention and deportation occur is because undocumented status is criminalized. If undocumented status isn't a civil offense, then there's no reason to not just have everyone go through the normal criminal justice system. I'm curious what you think about the core of the movement and how you will work to ensure that you stay true to those activist roots and not let it get hijacked. Absolutely. And you got to know, I uh, grew up in Southwest Detroit, right? This is an area where, you know, I represented the families, um, you know, for six years in the state legislature. Before everyone was talking about abolishing ICE, we were talking about it primarily because Twice, not once, but twice within a three-year period, ICE basically did what we call um, military operations uh, near uh, school, uh, one on the, my south side of the community and one uh, towards the river. I mean, we were devastated to see 
literally unmarked black uh, vehicles, you know, coming in these big SUVs coming in near one of our two of our schools and coming to pick up a parent, one of which they had the wrong warrant, another of which was completely the wrong person at all. They didn't even have a warrant. And what was so mind boggling is the fact that it terrorized the whole neighborhood. It terror. It wasn't anything to do with the border. And so the way I'm going to stay true to why we need to abolish ICE is talking about how it's impacted our, you know, American society, our, our neighborhoods within outside of the border. You know, when everybody keeps talking about this about our border, well, before 2003, there was a whole system in place to protect our border. ICE all of a sudden translated that into uh, sitting in parking lots at my churches churches in my neighborhood, uh, the fact that they are patrolling communities of color. Uh, I even have pictures of various so-called checkpoints. These are issues that I, as a state representative, reported to the Department of Homeland Security during Obama's administration. Many of them came to sit down with me and a bunch of advocates to talk about, oh, it's going to be different. We're going to change it. When it really comes down to it is that ICE and what it's supposed to be about is not exactly what's being implemented on the ground. And it actually is hurting Americans more and having uh, this militarization approach to so-called, you know, misleading completely, I think, um, disregards really uh, people's rights and the fact that you know, we don't need checkpoints in our neighborhoods. We we need you all to focus on the border like you did prior to 2003. And I think ICE changed that completely, that whole culture, and started going after the people that fund them, the people that actually um, uh, are, are the ones they're supposed to protect. Instead, they're terrorizing them. Rashida, I really appreciate that that bit of insight here. And, and Jordan, I appreciate how you connect immigration to how we're treating it as a criminal justice issue as opposed to a civil issue. Um, one piece, one topic that has come into news headlines recently um, in the criminal justice system is that there's been a nationwide prison strike going on for the last several days. Um, and these these inmates, these people that are incarcerated, planned this protest um, to effectively try to counteract um, the, the low wages that they're facing as part of their jobs that they have while they're incarcerated. So if you think about the incarcerated firefighters out in California, um, they're given extremely low wages. And when they come out, they're not even allowed to become actual firefighters. So they are protesting these horrible conditions. And I'm curious, what is your reaction to how these inmates are organizing? Um, and what is your perspective on it? I mean, power is such a powerful that um, this prison, prison strike, this movement has grown into getting people, you know, feeling this sense that like, we can speak up, even though we're, you know, they've caged so many of our, our people um, based on so many, you know, one of the things that I think is so striking is to see that we have, I think it's like millions of people within our prison system. And the fact that not only is our education system become an education industry or a for-profit industry, but even our prison systems have been led by for-profit industry, have been, uh, decisions have been made primarily based on that lens versus on keeping our community safe and really talking about what prisons were for, right? The prison system, what I call the correction system, was supposed to be about rehabilitation, about helping people um, 
uh, not be only held accountable, but get them to a point where they can reenter society. And we've really gotten away from that. You know, just like immigration has become about walls and separation of families, you know, our correction system is all about, you know, imprisoning and, and caging and, you know, violence where it, it wasn't, that wasn't the intent. You know, government is supposed to be about people. And no matter what people want to say and try to feel like, you know, those that are in the correction system are somehow less than, no, there are fellow Americans and they deserve access to justice like anyone else. And they deserve the opportunity to thrive through rehabilitation services, through programs that I think are just not being funded. Instead, we just insist on building more prisons and, and systems that to me create these structures that push people more into poverty and actually create more violence in our communities. And I, I'm so thankful, you know, when I see, I was driving with my son this morning, actually, and there was this big, it looked like somebody had spray painted uh, on a sheet over an overpass on the freeway. And my son who's 13 says, mama, what's that? And I was so proud to be able to tell him, do you know what's happening? This is what's happening. And he's the one who said, God, it sounds like that's what they're doing to schools. And I said, yes, honey, it's exactly what they're doing to our school system, too. So, Rashida, I'd like to look at some of the actual demands of the prison strike. The second one is, quote, an immediate end to prison slavery. All persons imprisoned in any place of detention under U.S. jurisdiction must be paid the prevailing wage in their state or territory for their labor. Would you agree with this? Yeah, I mean, that would be incredible. (laughs) You know what? What is what is amazing to me is, uh, you know, here in Michigan, we have a number of private prisons. And, you know, to force these corporations, many of which have no business being in the corrections uh, um, system or or trying to help rehabilitate our um, our uh, our, you know, fellow neighbors that are in prison or having to go through that process. But I think it speaks volumes of the fact that that's what that's the direction that our corrections system should go into about really trying to elevate people, helping them better their lives. And why not do that through a prevailing wage? Demand number 10 is in regards to voting rights. Quote, the voting rights of all confined citizens serving prison sentences, pretrial detainees and so-called quote unquote ex-felons must be counted representation is demanded, all voices count, end quote. Is that something you would agree with as well? This is not to influence, you know, whatever people might think, these are not people that are less than. These are people that we are responsible to rehabilitate because in some sort of way, I think we got away from the fact that, yes, our society creates sometimes uh, these circumstances where, and it's not to put blame but ultimately it is that person that makes that decision of whether or not to commit a crime. Uh, and I got to tell you, though, we have gotten away as a society of not feeling this sense of responsibility uh, for others and for conditions, especially looking at our school system and just how deteriorated it has become, especially in communities of color. And I, you know, love the fact when I went door to door, so many of my neighbors are returning residents who, you know, and I have a large one of the largest, I guess, returning um, resident population um, in Michigan. And they were like, well, I can't vote. You know, I, I have a felon. I said, no, you can vote. Uh, this is not Florida. You know, the fact that we also uh, have in place, I don't know if you all know this, that, you know, for you, if you're going to go to college, 
and you decide to do your taxes, that the kind of tuition tax break that you get, you know, when you claim your tuition, do you know returning residents are not able to get that tax break? I mean, they're going to school like everyone else and they're, they're prohibited from, from being able to, um, be, you know, be able to get that tax relief when they pay a tuition. Uh, those are the kinds of things that I feel like are the structures that are in place that doesn't help everyone thrive and doesn't better our country. And so I would love to see, wow, what an amazing, I mean, we'd love to see uh, millions of people be empowered through the right to vote. Absolutely. And I think this is kind of one side of the coin, the other side being how we treat people, especially people in the global south, people of color abroad. So you've been very vocal on the subject of foreign policy, something Democrats are often criticized for being weak on. What is your foreign policy vision? Dehumanize those issues. When we think about uh, foreign aid, sometimes I think you know, it's also also about we got to build friendship. We got that's great. That's important. We need allies. But I got to tell you, we don't provide aid to states unless they're following the Constitution. Unless you know, one of the ways we were able to really fight back against discrimination in some states against uh, my African American neighbors was by saying, "Look, we we are going to be able to provide funding for roads and funding for education and a number of essential." quality of life issues, but only if you are not discriminating against those based, you know, based on uh, sexual orientation, gender, uh, you name it, uh, race, and a number of things. And so we use it as leverage to make sure that we're promoting those values. And we don't do that enough with our foreign aid. And I think that's where we contradict ourselves. We do it to the you know, our states and, and in the, within the United States, but we don't do it abroad. And I think it's really important that we do use it as leverage to promote peace and promote equality and justice for all. And that's where, that's my perspective. That's where I've come from on regards to that. Rashida, there have been a number of stories lately on some positions you may have shifted or changed. And, and we oh, don't yeah. normally talk about foreign policy on this podcast, but we wanted to give you an opportunity to address some of these recent headlines. So to outline for our listeners, just by what I have seen is that prior to the primary, you were endorsed by a Jewish advocacy group called J Street, who is dedicated to a peaceful two-state solution between Israel and Palestine. And in the days since you won the primary, it's been reported that you might have actually changed your position and are now advocating for a one-state solution, resulting in J Street actually rescinding their endorsement. Can you tell our listeners from your perspective what's actually going on here? So you all, you know, and then it's not you all, but I think, you know, I'm going to continue having an open door for J Street and the possibility of a two-state solution. When I was asked, it was basically coming from a perspective of growing up in Detroit that separate but equal doesn't work. And I was honest about that. And I've always been very forthright about the fact that as an American, I don't like to impose you know, my position on various issues onto a whole people that I feel very, very, like, very centered around the self-determination. If the Palestinian people and Israelis want uh, a two-state solution, then great, as so long as it's, you know, promoting equality, peace, and justice for every single human being there, then I will support it. When I talked about one state, it's because 
I know when we integrate our schools, when we don't have different color license plates, which is exactly what's happening there, when we don't have, you know, this, this kind of sense that, you know, that, that, that these walls and these borders are, are going to somehow, you know, build these alliances and this kind of peaceful resolution. And that's where my kind of pessim, you know, I'm, I'm a little pessimistic about that. You know, I'm a, such an optimistic person uh, that, you know, this is one of the issues where, you know, a two state is something I'll support if it's from the people on the ground, not to ne- not leadership as much. But if I if I see a movement on the ground, I'm going to support it. If it's coming from the people on the ground and the, and, the, and the families there, you know, I still have family there. And I can tell you, even among them, they said, well, if two state could happen, that'd be wonderful. But does that mean I can't work in Tel Aviv anymore? Does that mean that the settlers that are right next to my grandmother's village have to be uprooted? So it's such a complex issue. And I don't think people understand that. But but clearly, if it's one state or two state, and it's coming from the determination of the people there that live there, because I don't live there, then I will support them a hundred percent as long as it's promoting peace. And, you know, that's where the perspective came from. I mean, growing up in Detroit, every single corner, and I'm not joking from murals to, you know, even the schools I've gone to is a reminder of the civil rights movement. And, you know, for us, yes, South versus North didn't work. And we have now the United States of America. And I guess for me as an American, that's where I come from. But again, I can't impose those values or those kinds of approaches to every single, you know, foreign land. I don't live there. There are people there that have to determine that on their own. No, I I appreciate that perspective. And I think this is one of those issues um, that if people don't talk about, they're not going to fundamentally understand. Um, And I think, you know, again, I I don't live there either. I only know um, what I read in, in various sources. Um, but I do want to dig into this kind of separate but equal scenario, um, the North versus South and, and the civil rights. Um, in a lot of ways, this has turned into, not in a lot of ways, it is an, an armed conflict. Um, there are effectively you know, proxy conflicts between two nation states with the U.S. funding Israel um, in Iran and in the Arab coalition funding Hamas and other groups in, in Gaza. Um, so it seems to me that a one-state solution is pretty far out of the mainstream. You know, why do you think that could be successful? Like I said, I was coming from that value of what I grew up with. But if, if it's one state or two state, I will support what the people there determine is what's right for them. So Rashida, one of the most significant ways that Congress actually makes a difference worldwide is with appropriations bills. And in regards to both domestic and foreign violence, we have seen Democrats and Republicans alike spend billions in taxpayer money on, you know, quote unquote, immigration enforcement, increasing the budget of the DHS and the DOD. Would you push against these budget increases as a member of Congress? I would have to, you know, I got to be there. You know, I haven't gotten sworn in yet. I... I can tell you just from six years serving only here in the state appropriations budget uh, as a member of the state house, I mean, I was ranking Democratic chair of approps. I have to, you know, wait until I really are able to look at this and study it. I can tell you, I mean, my friends, people the closest to me know that I have this thing that I do. I, I go to the Department of Defense 
website and go to the contracts area just to see, because I'm hoping one day I'll be able to see something that is, uh, you know, understandable. Uh, because if you read what were the contracts say, it's, they're very vague, very broad. Uh, I think once I saw something regarding uniforms, I said, okay, this must be about providing uniforms. But all of the contracts are for corporations, companies, very much uh, our military is now also become a profit industry. And, you know, I, from our education to our corrections and now our military uh, services is now being led and funded through corporations. And that's what makes me very weary. And that's one of the things that I want to really dig into and investigate. I think it's extremely dangerous that uh, we have this many contracts going to outsiders. Mm -hmm. And would you vote against foreign aid and weapons funding to states like Israel? Like I said, it ha has to be used as leverage. I think I said that including with, uh, with, um, with even the, 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 the states that what we do to states right now. I mean, I have to get there and see. I can tell you I'm very much an anti-war advocate. I don't believe in militarization. I am a person that looks beyond just, you know, are we really trying to help build like alliance with organization? I, I think about uh, the kids at the ground, the families, uh, the fact that my, you know, my family's in the 13th congressional district, whether or not they want their tax dollars being used for something they don't support. Uh, those are the kinds of things that go through my mind when I, when I get asked that question. Rashida, as you noted, um, you are still kind of in campaign mode, even though you do not have uh, someone running against you in the general. If folks want to learn more about you and perhaps get involved in the last couple of months here, how can they find you? So uh, I am pretty accessible, <laughs> but I can tell you we are, um, you know, through online, but our, you know, phone number is still up. Uh, people can always email me at Rashida at RashidaForCongress.com. They can always reach out to us at 313-694-3606. Uh, you know, I also check my, I, they haven't taken it away from me just yet, but if you send me messages through social media, I'm pretty responsive. Uh, and yeah, I, I, I hope that people reach out are genuine about wanting to make sure that every single American out there has access to thrive, to live in a just, equitable society. Please don't, you know, try to reach out to me just to tell me that I don't belong. Uh, I will delete you and block you. <laughs> um, I, I want, I hope that people do reach out to me um, with, with this sincerity about making our country even better. Hey, Rashida. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. Your candidacy is really exciting. We're really happy to know that you're going to be a historic member of Congress. And we'd love to get you on again after you win in November. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. And now to our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media. Support us through our Patreon. Check out our website, millennialpolitics.co. And stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.